You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Tell me that's not a pretty amazing dynamic. Your guide on the side. Just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. On BYU Radio. BYU Radio. A little coach's corner for you here. Um, as we've been learning about the value of time, right? You want your time, uh, and those people that chose time over money, they showed a, a higher sense of happiness. And uh, the researcher, Ashley Willans, was telling us that they do show a higher level of happiness depending on what they go do with their time, right? And one of the things she kept mentioning over and over and over was the fact that if they go and spend it with people they care about, with the relationships that matter to them, then it matters. So time matters, um, but it's not the time that's going to just make you happier. It's what you do with the time. It's the choice of how you spend your time. And so um, in the Coach's Corner, I wanted to just give you some ideas of maybe how to strengthen the time that you have with the people that you love, right? Because, you know, have you ever gone on a trip with your family and you thought, oh, wow, when's this thing going to end? I mean, I love them and everything, but we've got three more days of this trip. So here's some rules of just uh, how to hopefully find the time and actually spend the time that you find to make a little healthier relationship. One thing, number one, is find the compliment, not the critique. Um, if all of a sudden in the middle of this time that we're spending together, what we're doing is just critiquing each other, whether the critique is out loud or not, if I'm sitting there thinking of, man, why does my wife do this? Or why are my kids like this? And that's where my head goes. Eventually, that's where my heart will go, right? My thoughts are going to lead to my feelings. If I am thinking critique, I'm going to feel negative. And if I feel negative, I'm eventually going to act it out. I might just speak it out. You guys are lazy. Or I might act it out and just start slamming doors and whatever. So make sure that when we are together, we try to find compliments and use more positive language. If anything, have at least more positive thoughts. And Because and, remember, your language is going to communicate that you care or not. Um, another rule is lose the excuses. Uh, I taught time management for years with um, the industry leader, Franklin Covey, for years doing it and in and out, heard every excuse you could imagine about why people don't make time in their lives and for for important things. But now we're finding out by the research, whether you make the time or not, you're going to pay for it because it's going to be your happiness. It also could be your health. You may have a great excuse for why you don't exercise, but in the end, it's just still your body. Right. So it, it's not about more time. If I gave you another day, you would use it the exact same way you choose to use every other day that's free to you. It's so careful of your excuses because nobody buys them anyway, except you. And uh, if you really want to have some peace of mind and some happiness, you're going to eventually have to choose it. Another rule that uh, comes from the book First Things First is uh, a simple, it's a time management book, is the simple idea of make sure you're focusing on the important, not the urgent. Most of us as humans spend our lives reacting to urgent things in our lives. If the phone rings, you're going to pay attention to it, right? If you keep getting text messages that keep pinging your, your device, you will look down at those text messages. 
But just because something is urgent doesn't equate to it always being important. All things that ring in this world are not equally important. And many of the things that are most important in our lives aren't urgent until you've lost them. Like your health is always important, but it's not urgent until they're calling 911. Then it's like, I shouldn't have done that taco cleanse for 30 days. It's killing me. Important things sometimes are not urgent until it's too late. So make sure you're asking yourself a very simple question every day. What's the most important thing I can do today to strengthen my relationship? Or what's the most important thing I can do today to have a positive impact at work? Ask the important question, not the what's the most urgent thing that needs to be done. And last but not least, sit down with the people you love and formalize time. As Ashley told us earlier, plan your time ahead. You already know three weeks from now you have a free afternoon on Saturday. It's already there. So go put on the calendar next Saturday. We're going on a date. Plan ahead. By planning ahead, you'll actually always have time with the people you love. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Is your job going to just be outsourced? I mean, will there be a day where the radio talk show hosts will just be outsourced? I mean, it already is in the DJ world, right? They just put in all the songs and a computer will play the song for you. I think that's going to be the first job that's outsourced. Well, I actually think board operators will be the first job that's outsourced. No, there's a certain talent in art that goes behind board operating. No, see, no. See, the difference with the talk show host is that we have to know how to work with people. You, for example... Benny, you don't have to work with people. You don't have to communicate. Yeah, it's, it's hard. We, we wish you would. Don't get me wrong. We actually wish you would talk. But by the way, that was interesting. Yesterday, I, I left the confines of my office where I like to just hibernate and came out where the people are. And you were out there with – you were out there and all of the producers were talking to you. You were like involved in a, in a conversation. I know. It was like a real conversation. It was... It was like the first time, I think, in a year that I've seen you do that. Yeah. What's wrong? I... Are you okay? Isn't this supposed to be good? No, I think it's fantastic. Oh, okay. But it's like, I'm just wondering, are you sick? Um, was there... Did you need a ride? It's terminal. <laughs> so but... were, you, were you looking for a ride from somebody? Is that why you were talking to him? Well, Normally, you don't talk to the girls. Well, I, I was looking for a ride, but they all said no. So I thought I'd just... Yeah. Keep talking to let me them. Just, let me just tell you. If you ever need a ride, Terry's here. Oh, okay. Terry will take you wherever you I, need to go. I don't know. He Sometimes he has like a really stone cold look on his face. Yeah, that's Terry. Yeah. That's just how Terry rolls. Well, will he? You know what we ought to get you? Uh, you've heard about those um, self-driving cars. Yeah. Did you hear now they're self-driving strollers? Have one. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I wouldn't share that. Um, Smart B is marketed as the first intelligent stroller in the world. It uses motion tracking sensors to follow you wherever you go, allowing for hands-free strolling. Isn't that great? So you just put your baby in the stroller and then you just walk and then the stroller follows you. That would be great. Sounds dangerous. (laughs) You're a baby. Um, Like all great ideas nowadays, the Smart Bee is currently in its crowdfunding phase on the Indiegogo website. However, if all goes correctly, the stroller will be easily 
uh, will easily be the most decked out baby carrier ever created. In addition to an electric motor that will assist in movement, the stroller will also feature wireless speakers so your baby can rock out a bottle warmer. Are you kidding? A rocker and three retractable canopies. Plus, the, the, you can have a temperature-controlled bassinet. It'll only cost about $3,200. So once again, the rich and their babies get to stay warm while the rest of us are freezing. The future doesn't look so good for the poor people or just us average folks. Anyway, uh, you can expect shipment April 2017. Ben, I'm worried about your future. You can easily outsource ice cream. No, you can't. No, you can. No. Not the way I make it. That's true. Um, I could just send my kids to the store and say, son, go get some ice cream. Outsource. Well, well, that's buying ice cream. That's not making ice cream. Right. But how many outsourced ice cream maker I mean how many ice cream makers are we going to need in the future if one robot can make every kind of ice cream yeah but it's it's an art format like I know what would happen though is the robot would come buy your ice cream I would like to buy some ice cream and it would buy your ice cream it would then take your recipe and then the robot makes your recipe boom you're out of business you're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend show I mean when you think about depression or anxiety, or ADHD, or any kind of mood disorder, or just other things. Migraines, fibromyalgia, Hashimoto's disease, all of these things, they're they're hard, they're complicated, and we have so many people, our neighbors, our friends, our family, that are battling these issues. They're battling them day in and day out, and you don't even know it. You don't know that somebody, your neighbor, was just diagnosed with something. And, I mean, if it was cancer, we're all like, oh, that would be horrible. But you don't know that they were diagnosed with depression. And as uh, Sandra Turley was talking about, they're battling with just the idea that I've got depression. And they might, it might take three or four months to figure out what that means. And instead of us all just judging these people, like, oh, they're just a rude neighbor. Yeah, they never say hi. I say hi to them all the time, and they never say hi. Well, meanwhile, back in the back bedroom of your neighbor that never says hi, she's struggling with migraines. She's she's not just the neighbor that's closed off and trying to avoid you. She's also trying to close off the light from her home because the light causes headaches. What if we could all be a little more accepting, a little more patient, a little more taking the place of other um, and, and trying to understand somebody before we, you know, before we judge them? What if we could have more compassion of one another? And maybe walk in their shoes. Oh, that's just so soft and fluffy, Matt. Yeah. Until it's you, right? And again, for some it's depression, and that's going to be their cross to bear. And for others, it's a child that gets away and is struggling. And for other, it's, uh, you know, somebody that 
that harms them in a car accident. We've all got a cross that we've got to carry. We've all got a, a cross that we have to bear. Um, and yet in the end – and it doesn't go away. And the longer you go, the more likely you are to eventually receive the cross if you haven't received it yet and feel the burden of it. Um, just give everybody time. Give everybody time. And if it's not you, it could be your parents you're helping through. Which is why, you know, if is you're aging and your parents are aging, right when you finally get your kids out of your house and everything should be great and now you got money and you've got age and youth still to to go have a life with your family or your spouse, then your aging parents need care. The burden is everybody's, right? And if we could just see that everyone around us is suffering silently something and be a little slower to judge, a little slower to react, um, let's get more of our self-worth, more of our um, sense of value from being somebody who can just care. What if we could just increase our ability to love somebody? And and it doesn't have to be soft and just frou-frou-y. It could also be powerful. There's there's people that you could go impact their life today if just by giving them a break, just by not having to react, just shake your head and walk away. Um, makes sense. And it's not it's not easy making it through life, and it's really not easy making it through life when everyone around you has a critique. And I sometimes worry that, you know, we're so proud of our rights to speak and freedom to speak. And we all want our freedoms, but none of us want the responsibility of also knowing when not to speak. If somebody says something stupid, you don't necessarily have to combat it. You could just let that silly idea drop and die. You don't have to beat the stupid idea to a bloody pulp. Just let it go and instead elevate the conversation by saying something healthier. Anyway, folks, we're in this together and it's not going away. We are uh, we are neighbors and we are each other's good Samaritans. So let's do what we can to elevate the game. It's the goal of the show. That's the Coach's Corner, folks. Fairly basic stuff, eh? We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, have you ever come across a problem that seemed to to have no solution? You just could not see a way out of the problem. You spent hours and hours worrying and straining to find a way to mend a relationship or to fix a reoccurring work issue. It's all you can think about. We'll stop it. Our next guest, Dr. Um, David Niven, joins us. He is the author of the book, It's Not About the Shark, How to Solve Unsolvable Problems. And he's here today um, to talk to us about uh, what we might be doing wrong that is actually keeping us from solving the problem. Dr. David Niven, welcome to the show, my friend. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you, Matt. Great to have you. Talk to us about, just first of all, the name of the book, It's Not About the Shark, How to Solve 
unsolvable problems. What do you mean by that title? That's pretty interesting. Well, the the name It's Not About the Shark comes straight from one of, I think, the, the very best examples of the difference between focusing on a problem and focusing on a solution. And this is, you know, in the midst of the making of the movie Jaws, which this is Steven Spielberg's first big chance. You know, he hasn't, yeah. hasn't made all those movies that he becomes famous for. This is his shot with the big studios making a movie. And he spends literally the majority of his budget on the construction and design of a mechanical shark. I mean, this is his vision for how to sort of haunt you know, the American imagination with this monster shark. And, and it's, it's literally, it's in the storyboards of the very first scene. The very first thing we're going to see is this monster shark coming out of the ocean and attacking. And here was the thing. The shark didn't work. Almost to a comical degree, it malfunctioned, broke down. I mean, even, even the skin of it, it was, it was you know, covered in this polyurethane that, that just puffed up like a giant marshmallow <laughs> instead of you know, looking like this you know, menacing, sleek shark skin. And so the movie's already in production. The actor's there, the boat's there, the, everything's ready to go. And the shark every day is breaking down. And so he had this critical moment where if he had focused on the problem. My, my shark is broken. If he'd focused on the problem, he really would have been stuck because he'd already spent his budget. He was out of time. If he'd gone to the studio and said, I need a new shark, they probably would have shut the film down. But he didn't focus on the problem. What he thought instead of, my shark's broken, how do I fix the shark? He thought, how do I make the best movie I can? And, and that's an entirely different question. And it, from that thought, he started thinking, what would Hitchcock do in this situation? And from that thought, he started thinking, do I really need a giant mechanical shark? What if I implied the shark? And you know those scenes where, you know, the, the camera's at the waterline and the, the, the music is playing and, and you feel that, you know, that, that intensity of, and you know what's going to happen and you don't actually see the shark. And so he changed the entire approach of the film from literally starting the film with a close-up of the shark to, for the most part, you don't see the shark. And, and most of the movie goes by, you don't see the shark at all. And he actually frightened people much more profoundly because he let us use our imagination and, and brought that into the movie. And when you, when you read the, the critical reviews today about what was so revolutionary about the film, they're largely focused on the fact that the shark isn't visible, <laughs> that, it's, that, it's, that it menaces us in our own minds. And that's really the essence of what my book is about. If he had focused on the problem, the, sh the film would have been shut down. We yeah. never would have heard of Jaws, and we never would have heard of Steven Spielberg. He didn't focus on the fact that the shark was broken. He focused on what his actual you know, mission was, which was to create the best movie possible. And by that, he blew right past the problem into something better than he imagined. Yeah. I mean, like John Williams puts, what, two or three keys together to create mm -hmm. the, ja the Jaws theme. And that may have been more impactful than the shark. 
Absolutely. I mean, you think about it's how crazy. You, I mean, you remember those notes and yeah. you remember that feeling. And, and, and Spielberg put the camera literally half above and half below the water to give you that sense of what was coming. And that stays with us so much more than, you know, any, any like mechanical movie monster, you mm-hmm. know, often become, you know, kind of uh, fodder for being made fun of because they look so silly over time. But, you know, not the case with Jaws. It, it, it remains as, as a powerful model uh, today as it was then. And we do the same thing as humans, right? Every day trying to figure out how to solve our problem. We become preoccupied with the one problem instead of, what, the 900 solutions? Well, that's right. That's, that's the idea here, that anything that you're facing in any aspect of your life, you can look at it problem first, in which case the problem can blot out your attention. I mean, if Spielberg had literally spent all his time on fixing the shark and getting in there with the wiring and everything, he never would have gotten out of there. Or you can focus on the solution. And part of what the book was inspired by was this study that took a a group of engineering students, put them in a room, and said, we want you to draw up plans for a bike rack, a bike rack to go on cars, make it, you know, make it as simple and easy as, as you possibly can for people. You be as creative as you can. We want a great bike rack. All right, go. And set them loose with paper and pencil and, and ask them to do the best they could. At the same time they did that, they had a second group of engineers, same setup, exact same question that they were you know, given, except when they told them about this bike rack situation, they said, here's where other people have run into problems in the design. Here's something that you're going to need to correct for. Now, in theory, this is the exact same task. You're both sitting down. You're, you're, you're trained for this. You're product designers. You're, you're creating a bike rack. But it works out that the group that was just told to design a bike rack was literally 17 times more likely to solve the problem that they didn't even know about than the group that was told, here's the problem mm. you're going to have to solve. And it was all because the folks who knew what the problem was started from the, the perspective of the problem. That was the thing that guided their entire process. The folks who didn't know what the problem was looked at this and said, what's the best way I could do it? And in thinking about that, they jumped over the problem without even knowing they were doing it. Wow. 17 times more effective right. just by having by just starting with – the really just open-minded what let's right. let's have let's find solution to this issue cool right by starting with what was possible yeah the possible what was impossible and you know they came up with more designs they came up with better designs and they were you know they had the exact same training and it was really the exact same task except for that one thing about whether you started it by what was hard about this or what was possible about this so why do we do this uh i mean naturally why David, do I just get sucked into this need to be so problem-obsessed that I can't get into the possible? Well, I mean, there's certainly, you know, a kind of a biological imperative that we pay attention to danger and that we pay attention to threat. And, you know, it's a great survival instinct. And were we, you know, to live amongst, you know, saber-toothed tigers and the like, we better be problem-oriented because we're not yeah. focused on that problem. We're not going to have another day. But when you, when you progress thousands and thousands of years and still have that impulse, you know, it loses its benefit to us. And whether it's in your home life, in your work life, in any aspect of what you're doing, you're not being chased by a saber-toothed tiger. You know, it, it's time to, to think past that. And 
you know, what we do when we're confronting a problem is, you know, we, we bear down and, and, and we really get inside the problem. And, it, and it, it tells us what we can do and what we can't do. It shuts off a lot of possible avenues for, for how we might proceed. And, you know, there's no aspect of our modern life where that, where that fits, where that's helpful to us. And so it's natural but just because it's natural doesn't mean that you know we should keep doing it. Mm. And it also seems like some of our systems today incentivize finding problems. It almost gives us more power. It, I mean, just listen to the politicians today talking about all of the problems, um, almost fear mongering, fear baiting, and then people start to follow them. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it is it is a natural, you know, it is a natural phenomenon, but. You know, it's also, you know, of, of devastating consequence. I, you know, I write about in the book a lot of, of of studies that I think really can tell us a bit about how we live and how we could live better. And you know, I, I write about them so that anybody can understand them and anybody can use them. And one of the great examples uh, on this point, there's a study that it brought married couples in, and it literally all they were asked were. You know, generic questions. How did you meet? And you know, very pleasant kinds of questions. And the researchers weren't at all interested in the answers. They were interested in how the couples interacted with each other. Hmm. And what they found was, if one, you know, if the husband or the wife did anything negative, you know, kind of, you know, um, reacted with a negative face, you know, interrupted, you know, did anything negative at all in those conversations the spouse was five times more likely to repeat that negative behavior than if one spouse did something positive in those interactions. It five times, we took five times more power out of the bad than the good. And hmm. I mean, that's, that's problem-based thinking applied to modern life. You know, it's, it's natural. We're, you know, we're programmed to look out for what's wrong, but the, the pain of that is obvious. You know, the, there's, there's absolutely no upside of being five times more likely to mimic the bad than the good. And, right. you know, you can imagine the cost of that in a relationship if, you know, you, you have to be, you know, five times as nice as you, as you are uh, mean just to be equal. Exactly. And, you know, that's, that's, that's a tough equation. That is a, t- that is a very tough equation. Uh, let's continue this discussion after the break. We're speaking with Dr. David Niven, um, author of the book, It's Not About the Shark, How to Solve Unsolvable Problems. And uh, Dr. Niven, um, you can find him on, at his website. Uh, I got to find it for you, doctor. Where are you, doctor? Oh, it, Dr. Niven, where is your website for crying out loud? It's just davidniven.com. That's it. davidniven.com. Interesting book, isn't it? To, to figure out how you get unstuck and solve the, the what seemingly are the unsolvable issues. We're going to come back and talk about some more problems that might be gumming up your ability to solve basic issues. Um, and more than just the problem talk, we're going to get to some solutions for what you can do to get to those answers. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you love stronger and lead healthier lives. We'll be right back.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Do you have any issues, problems you just can't solve? And maybe it might just simply be you can't see the problem because, or you can't see the solution because you're so into the problem. And a lot of times we might even get overwhelmed by the emotion, by the, by the energy, by the fear, by the need to fix this problem, that it might keep us from seeing other solutions. And so we are talking with Dr. David Niven, uh, who is a researcher and a writer. He's, he's an expert at taking some of the latest research and then being able to explain it in uh, easier terms. He's the author of the book, It's Not About the Shark, How to Solve Unsolvable Problems. And uh, he's been talking to us about simply the fact that if, if we can actually, um, when we get focused on the problem, like a shark, if you're Steven Spielberg, it may keep you from making a great movie um, because you get so consumed with the shark and the need for the Jaws shark to look real that uh, you might overlook everything else that goes on in the movie. And so when the, when the shark breaks down, maybe what you need to do is focus on everything else and do what you can with everything else, and uh, which is really turning problem solving upside down. And uh, that's one of the keys to his book is to show us how to do that. So, Dr. David Niven, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being with us. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you. Is it, um, is it true that when you're working – um, I mean, it seems like if I'm already kind of chemically charged and I start chasing a problem I've got to solve and my fight or flight is kind of kicking in, I might think I'm working really hard to fix it when really I might just actually be making it worse. Absolutely. And, and you know, again, this is part of where our natural inclinations can work against us. You know, anybody would say, what's the best you can do, you know, right now up against whatever you're up against and their answer is going to be well i'm going to work hard i'm going to put in the hours i mean that's you know i mean we we just understand that at such a fundamental level that that's the thing to do and you know one of the examples i write about was um the the legendary college football coach urban meyer when he first came to national prominence at the university of florida you know he was somebody who had been schooled his whole life in the sort of the essence of being a workaholic, mm-hmm. you know, even to the point when he was when he was in high school, and uh, he struck out once in a, in a high school baseball game, and 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 his father wouldn't give him a ride home from the game, told him to walk because <laughs> he thought Urban Meyer hadn't been trying hard enough. So I mean, this guy was raised yeah. to work hard, and so one of the the examples I write that I think is really instructive at the University of Florida, they had a a uh, tradition that if they had a, a winning football game, after the game, the players would gather for victory meal, and they would have this massive spread, and they would put up TVs in the rooms, so, and they'd watch a replay of their victory, and they would eat dinner together, and it, would, it was really this, this you know, bonding and celebratory experience. You know, what are we fighting for? You know, we're fighting for each other. We're fighting for the win, and it was, you know, it was this really positive connection that was built. And Coach Urban Meyer, over time, you know, he wins a national championship. He's, a, he's the king of the college football world. And the way he was programmed, he responded to that by working even harder. He spent even more time in the film room, even more time coming up with game plans to the point where he started skipping the victory meal. And he was doing it in service of hard work. Right. That was his ethic. And, and, of course, you work hard. That's how you solve, that's how you solve problems. And so eventually – 
after he had been skipping victory meal for a while, he happened to walk by the room after a victory, ducked his head in, and he noticed that that the victory meal was almost empty. There was almost nobody in there. And it used to be that everybody on the team and every assistant coach, everybody associated with the program, you know, would never dream of skipping it. So he goes in and he wonders where all the players are. And finally, one of the low-level assistant coaches says, you know, the, the players stopped coming when you stopped coming. Hmm. And, he, you know, he, he started to reexamine this idea that he might possibly be working hard against his own interests. Because, you know, he, his work ethic had actually gotten in the way of part of how he wanted to define his team and his program and, and what the sport was all about. And not too long after that, he wound up walking away from the game uh, exhausted and burnt out and, and unable to continue coaching. And one of the things that's interesting to me is he's back now, of course, as the coach of Ohio State. He's won a national championship there. And he talks about how his approach is fundamentally different and how he wasn't allowed to come back to coaching by his family unless he agreed to a set of rules that are principally about him not doing that again, not <laughs> overworking the problem to the point where he's actually working against his own interests. And you know, part of what I'm doing in It's Not About the Shark is, is really letting folks know that you know, when you're stymied by a problem, it's not that you are failing and, and, and that you, for some bizarre reason, have chosen the wrong approach, it's that you know, we naturally bump up against the problem and stare at it. And we naturally you know, throw everything we, we have at it, and it just so happens those are the worst things we can do <laughs> to actually solve something. And an and, and amazing story with uh, Urban there. He's, he's the best in the country. So mm-hmm. – I mean, it would almost be easy to presume and be confident in his mind that he was he was confidently doing what was right, even though it was actually not working for him. But he still felt confident about it until it caught up with him. Absolutely. And, and you know, he had, a, as I mentioned a moment ago, he had a rather unique upbringing where, you know, this was drummed into him that effort, effort you know, exceeds the value of everything. And, and there's a, a great story about Urban Meyer's first sport was actually baseball, and he's, he was drafted into the Atlanta Braves system. He was a minor league baseball player right out of high school. He's, you know, he's 18 years old playing minor league baseball. And it works out that even though he was a, he was a great high school player, he, he just can't hit in the minor leagues. You know, it's, it's too advanced, and he's just not hitting. And, and they try everything they can do, the Atlanta Braves do, to, to you know, to help him through this, and he's just, he's just, it's too high a level for him. He can't make it. And he, he's on the phone with his father after a game, and he says, I, I, I think I better quit because I'm, I'm just not going to make it. And his father says to him, well, you can quit, but you'll never be welcome in my home again. <laughs> and then the father says, you can call home once every year on Christmas but I won't answer the phone. <laughs> and, and, I mean, this, this is the mentality. So, of course, you know, he's going to approach his life. You know, this is what, this is what he was brought up with. This is what right. he believed. And he didn't quit. He fought his way through and, until the Braves, of course, released him because he couldn't hit. But he never quit. He never walked away. And so, you know, n- most of us didn't grow up with, with Urban Meyer's father, but we, but we grew up in a culture that celebrates effort. Nobody, nobody anywhere celebrates, well, I tried 75%. You know, nobody. You know, right. That's not the culture. So, of course, we all adopt it as as what we're supposed to be doing. And sometimes we just want to. We feel like moving and being active, even if it's wrong, 
it's still better than standing there and not doing anything. Absolutely. You know, the, the frustration level of, of thinking that, you know, I'm, I'm not doing something is, is, is overwhelming. But of course, you know, one of the things that, that just happens to be the case when you attack a problem with everything you have is, you know, you can quite easily make things worse. And, <laughs> and you know, reality requires us to, to try and come at this a different way. Isn't it also difficult? It seems like a lot of times when you're trying to solve a problem, you're not doing it alone. You have other people giving you advice and sometimes, you know, your need to please them or your need, your belief that they know what they're talking about might lead you astray as well. Absolutely. And, and it's one of the things that I write about that, you know, if you're going to go at things, solutions first instead of problems first, that you're going to have to accept the cost of that, which is the people around you are going to see problems first. And odds are the first thing they're going to say to your solution is, ah, uh, that can't work. Let me tell you why. And so, you know, one of the reasons why Spielberg made it through and made Jaws is he didn't ask permission. He didn't go to the studio and say, the shark is broken. Can I make the movie without the shark? He just kept making the movie. And I mean, that's part of how it happened. He didn't stop um, and let let a committee say why this would never work. Um, you know, one of the um, you know, one of the, the examples I write about in the book that, that, that fascinates me is a, a fellow by the name of Philip Schultz. He's a, uh, he's a decorated American poet. And as a child, he was profoundly dyslexic and he couldn't read. And, you know, his parents took him to all kinds of schools and all kinds of specialists and tutors. And they all threw up their hands and said, well, you can't read. And it works out that he never made it to reading until he got away from all those people who were telling them that he couldn't do it. And he actually, you know, somewhat ingeniously, um, out of desperation, kind of, kind of created in his own mind an alter ego. And, and he let the alter ego go about the task of trying to learn to read. And hmm. so instead of focusing on, oh, poor Philip, Philip Schultz who can't read and, and, you know, who everybody laughs at, you know, he created this alter ego and, and let the alter ego sit literally by himself and, and, and fight his way through and try and associate, you know, the things he was reading with the, the words he'd heard out loud. And, and he teaches himself to read and, and beyond that goes on to become, you know, a, a decorated poet. poet. And, you know, this is what, this is the essence of it. You know, you have to be willing to think about a solution and then you have to be willing to um, let the rest of the world catch up to you because you're going to be ahead of them. Right. That right. And and sometimes I guess you just have to find that confidence inside first, and then um, you know then let everyone else in. Well, it helps. You know, I, I mentioned a lot of, of little studies that it helps sometimes to step outside of yourself and you know look at things just from a different angle. Don't feel sort of trapped by the way you have always looked at something. And and there's there's lots of these these little studies that have given people, uh, different creativity tests, and shows very clearly, you, you know, you want a creative idea today at work, you want to do something you've never done before, get out of your cubicle, just physically get out of it. You know, when you're trying to come up with a solution, get out of the space you normally occupy, you'll be more creative, because you're not surrounded by these physical limits. You know, you want to, you want to come up with a solution today, um, research clearly shows it helps to do some things out of order. So, 
you know, instead of putting the, the peanut butter on the sandwich first, put the jelly on. Instead of taking the exact same route to work, go, go, you know, go the, the, take the left turn instead of always going right. You'll be more creative because you're not set in the standard set of responses and you're not set in that standard set of geography. That's pretty cool. I mean, and they're basic. That's what I love about what you do, David. You take just the research that we hear a million different studies and you combine them all together in one book, in one issue. You've done other books as well, 100 Simple Secrets to Happy People, 100 Simple Secrets of Successful People. The website is davidniven.com. David, thanks so much for being with us and teaching us. Matt, it was my pleasure. Great stuff. And let's start solving some problems for heaven's sakes, folks. Be different and mix it up. And don't worry about the shark. That's such great advice. Focus on the other 100 things that would make the movie work, Steven Spielberg. I think he figured it out. Now he's solving problems all the time. Interesting stuff. Folks, let's take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back, wrapping up the second hour of the show, helping you live longer, love stronger. Stick with us. to the Matt Townsend Show. Isn't that interesting? Um, Solving the unsolvable problem. And if you think about it, it it's just all in your head. Really? It's just all in your head because you can't see the forest for the trees, right? There's just that problem right in front of you. Got to fix the shark. Got to fix the shark. Or uh, if my husband would just communicate better. Well, sure. But um, I found, even in my coaching work, it is so much easier to to focus on what works than what's broken. I've never seen a marriage be helped or healed or improved by simply recognizing our problem and talking about it ad nauseum. The more we talk about the problem, what I have found is it usually just reinforces the problem. It makes us more angry, more frustrated. However, every time you have a problem in a relationship, you probably have somewhere in the past where you didn't have the problem. Well, yeah, like when we were first married, sure. But we were clueless. We didn't have a clue. Great. So watch how weird this is. What did you do differently when you were first married that you no longer do today? Well, we used to – we never fought back then. Today we fight. We just immediately fight. Well, okay, okay, great, great that you went back to the problem. So what did you used to do when you – instead of fighting? Well, we would talk to each other. Okay. Tell me more. What would the talk be like? How was your talking different back then? Well, we would just listen. Right. Okay. And well, we wouldn't name call. Okay. What else would you do? Well, we'd actually had other time to be together. We we didn't just talk for 10 minutes before going to bed. We used to have all all evening to talk. Okay, so you made time. You spent time with each other. What else did you do? Well, we kissed more. That's for sure. <laughs> so you kissed more. What does kissing have to do with fighting? Oh, a lot, believe me. Very few people that are kissing are fighting. It's hard to kiss and fight. 
So notice the point is not that you should kiss, but you totally should. But the point is a little different. The point is simply if you want to have a, a solution to your fighting problem, you might want to go back to where you didn't do it because there's a lot of things you used to do that may have prohibited the fighting. And I'm going to bet if you introduce some of those back into your life, you might actually start solving the problem like spend time together. How about that? Um, how about doing more fun things together? Back in the day when you were first dating and first married, you didn't bring up every problem all day, every day, all the time. Well, we hardly had any problems. Right. But you also talked about positive things. You probably told your partner what they did well. You focused on good stuff too. You didn't just focus on the negative. All of these are solutions. And when I work with couples, there are a hundred solutions to every problem they bring up. But we get so obsessed with the problem, we never get to these other ideas. And by the way, I can go backwards to my past to find them. I can find them today. What's working today? Because you may not have fought today. So what did you do today that worked better? And you could look to the future. What would it look like if we fixed it and a magic fairy brought down a unicorn and carried you to a way to heaven? The solutions are there. Or you can just go to the problems. Don't chase the shark, for heaven's sakes. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Stick with us. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. Your guide on the side. If we're not wholeheartedly in our relationship, then we probably are always looking for exit strategies. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Hey, today we're talking about tips for raising your your kids in an online world, especially how to raise kind kids, healthy kids. Um, We've already kind of talked about be careful that you're not shaming them. Have a big discussion. Open the discussion up with your kids. Let your kids teach you because your kids know more about technology than you do. And so if you put them in the role of being the teacher, they'll usually open up a lot more for you. Let them help you with your tech issues. It's the greatest thing when your child gets to actually teach dad. And by having kind of that inverted power relationship where your child's the knower and you get to be the learner, you learn a lot about your kids. You learn a lot about how they think. You learn a lot about their esteem. So that's powerful. Some other tools that I would I would just – I'd highly suggest because they're things that to me seem to go to the wayside when we get into the online world. Make sure for your children you're modeling excellent social skills because technology, I have a feeling, is going to impair some of our social skills, right? Like we have people breaking up with people via text. That used to be a conversation we'd always have face-to-face. We have people that um, are asking someone out on a date simply by filling out a form or typing something in on their website. Now, there's nothing wrong with online dating, but there's going to be a day that you're going to have to face the person you're dating. And if you don't have the social skills... You're in trouble. So as a family and as a couple, make sure you spend time teaching your children social skills. Teach them how to make new friends. Teach them how to start a conversation with somebody. 
Give them some starters. Hey, that's a nice dress. Where did you get it? What are you studying? Just ask. Teach them some skills about how to start a conversation. Teach them skills about how to end a conversation. Have you ever been talking to somebody that couldn't end the conversation? And you almost just want to walk away. Yeah, I'm done. I'm out of here. This isn't working for me. Focus on social skills. And that might even be something in a weekly basis, maybe at your dinner table with your kids. Teach them a new social skill. Make sure that you're also giving your children an opportunity to order their own food at the restaurant, that they're going up at restaurants, and they're, if they have to go back and, and get something or talk to the adult, let your kids talk to the adult. Teach them how to solve a problem by talking. Now, it's hard when they're younger, but when they're a little older, coach them through it. Model it. Model it. Model it. The more you model excellent social skills, I think the more hope your kids are going to have in the world. In the end, it's going to come down to relationships. It's not just going to come down to technology. Think of your Facebook friends. How many of those do you even interact with face-to-face? You could also um, model while you're at it your values and your beliefs. Have discussions with your family about what are the family values. What do we believe in as a family? When you see a problem online and – you caught one of your children having looked at pornography, bring up our values. Talk about your beliefs. Talk about why that's harmful. Talk about how it objectifies women, how it changes how we see each other, and have those conversations. Start letting your children understand that the decisions you're making about disciplining them are based on a family value of We believe that we should have respect of each other, and that wasn't respectful what you did. We believe that you should keep your promises. And coming home a half hour late, you didn't keep your promise. Tie your discipline back to your family values and your beliefs. Why that's important is because then as your child is interacting uh, with this crazy online technology that's ever-changing, they will always have a core set of values and beliefs that they can go from. No matter what happens online, son, be respectful. No matter what happens online, serve or love or care or lift people. Right? No matter what happens online, be safe. Don't invite someone into your life that you don't know. So model your model excellent social skills and model your values and your beliefs. Also, model connection and sensitivity. One of the things I think that happens with online experiences is um, we're, we're in a weird state with these people. Uh, the research shows that you are much more likely to say something online than you are um, to say it to someone's face. You're more willing to say something in a chat room or like on a message board underneath an article that you didn't like. You're much more likely to be rude and angry and hurtful than you are if that person was in the room with you. There's just something about kind of the anonymity of being online that that's a problem. And the best way to fix it or fight it is connect. Teach your children that when they're talking to somebody 
via text, there's a human back there, right? The interface is just the text, but there's a human being that – and you need to be sensitive to what you say. Think about how they would interpret what you're doing. Talk about it. When they've they've received a text message that was hurtful, bring it up. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. In our family once – I had my son that would take pictures of one of my other sons that were embarrassing. They were like when he's sleeping, and then he would he would take him with his phone, with the son that was sleeping's phone, and then he would send it out to all of his friends. And he just thought it was the funniest thing in the world. Great. Now, if you live long enough and you have kids, you're going to have these issues with technology. So then we sat everybody down and we had a big talk. What does that feel like? So if your brother did it to you, how would you feel? I wouldn't care. Well, whether you care or not, what do you think he feels? He's your younger brother and you just sent a picture of him looking pretty goofy out to everybody he knows? That's hard. Have the conversations. Model connections. Show him what a healthy connection looks like. But you can't show him what a healthy connection looks like if you don't know how to connect. So that's why you're going to eventually need to Turn off some tech once in a while and have some connection. And then another rule for you is just model the law of the harvest. You reap what you sow. You've got at some point, I think if if technology is going to continue as it is, which it will, it'll just continue doubling. At some point, um, we are becoming a, a population, I think, that is so addicted to instant gratification that I think we're in trouble. So we have to somehow slow the flow of instant gratification. And I would probably have a big discussion about it and challenge everybody in the family. What do you love the most? Teach them. You know, how many times have you just been going home and one of the kids says, hey, can we go to McDonald's or whatever? And you don't, you just, yeah, sure. You know what? Go home. Make a meal. That's one of the great things about making your own meal is it actually takes time. And the time with hungry kids is a good lesson to learn. But nowadays, we can just shove a nugget in their mouth and say, there you go, pal. We're robbing the principles of the harvest, the law of the harvest. You reap what you sow. If you don't have the discipline to feel the desire to look at your phone and not look at it, You're in trouble because that means you won't have the discipline when your kid is mouthing off at you in 20 or 30 years. You won't have the discipline to not go off on him. We have to start teaching our children about some of these uh, natural laws of like instant gratification and delaying gratification. So technology is great. Don't get me wrong. I love it. It's here to stay. And I think it's incredibly beneficial to our lives if we lead it. But if we're not leading it, then we are just being acted upon, and it's going to create bigger problems for us. So lead it, for heaven's sakes. Let's just lead it. Anyway, there's a little tech advice for you from Coach Matt. Now, you all, you knew this. You knew it already. The hard part is uh, it's living it. That's where it gets a lot more difficult. So You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Interesting uh, conversation. Man, if you could just go to a therapist uh, 
or if you didn't need to go to the therapist and you could just do it yourself, we're going to put a lot of therapists out of business. <laughs> Ben's like, yes. I mean, therapists do great work, but many times they're just, they're, they're really just reflective listeners, right? They're listening well. And what would happen if you had a friend that was a, a, just a really good listener? Are you that kind of friend that you can perform that listening function, um, you know, for your partner to, to help get their emotions out? Oh, it's, it's not easy. I get it. I know. I know. It's not easy. And so um, when you think about it, and I, I see this a lot in my practice, there's, there's these signs, okay? I call them, you don't need to just always be, I don't know, totally ready and engaged to just listen to your partner. But there are times you have to be ready to be engaged and listen to your partner. There's three signs I look for, and I learned about them. Um, I learned about this concept as an emergency medical technician. So right after, uh, uh, when I was about 21, I guess, I was an EMT on an ambulance, and I was certified in you know life support or basic life support, and uh, learned all the tools and the rules and and how to how to basically take care of somebody in an ambulance on the way to the hospital. And one of the first things they taught us is you got to check vital signs, right? Vital signs, because you need to know where your patient is. There's a very basic baseline for where your patient is, and you need to check you know pulse. Um, respirations, if you could, oxygenation, see how well they're oxygenating. You could take a, a blood pressure, just basic signs. And the neat thing about humans is we pretty much have these very basic vital signs. And then what happens is there's a very powerful um, pattern that doctors and, and hospitals use where when you come in and see them, you can say whatever you want to say about why what you're feeling, and they'll be listening to you. But while they're listening to you, they're going to check your vital signs, right? They're going to check your temperature. They're going to check a bunch of different things. All of those are signs of something going on deeper down. And what I have found is just like we have it physiologically, we have vital signs. Emotionally, we have vital signs as well. So there's three signs I'm constantly looking for in the people that are around me. Negative emotion is a sign. There's a sign of something deeper going on. And if you see negative emotion in somebody, instead of yapping and instead of arguing and telling them your point of view, I wouldn't tell them. I would just try to understand where their emotion is coming from. So I look for negative emotion. I look for misunderstanding. And I look for mistrust. When I see those signs, I know I need to kind of get out of my agenda and get into the agenda of the other person. Right? So if if my... If my spouse comes home and they're slamming doors, that's negative emotion. I should see that, pay attention to that. I should try to understand what's going on. Hey, babe, I can see you're frustrated. Tell me what's going on. I'm just mad because the kids took my whatever and I can't find it and I've got to go use it right now. There's frustration. Behind every negative emotion, you're going to hear a story. People want to tell their story because they would love the emotion to go away. So what if as humans, we could just start paying attention to the negative emotion, the misunderstandings. Misunderstanding simply means when something's going on and you don't know why it's going on and there's a misunderstanding. If, I'm, if, if I have a, a person that's, that's quiet 
and and shuts down, I'm going to know they have negative emotion, and I don't understand exactly why. I shouldn't just guess. Is this because of what happened last year? <laughs> I mean, last year's example of of this same you know behavior may not be very accurate. So I, what I'd love to do is recognize the emotion. You seem really upset. What's going on? Share with me why you're upset. Because if I could get the story, that would increase my understanding, right? And then if I could understand the person and not, you know, make them worse, then they could trust me. So that's what we're looking for in our relationships. Emotional management, understanding, and trust. That's the best thing I've ever learned to know when I need to be listening to somebody. When I see that they're negative emotionally, when I don't understand why and I don't understand their reasoning, try to understand it, and do they trust me to share it? We're going to take a break. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. So what separates the human race, the human species, from other animals? We certainly aren't stronger, right? They can outrun us, many of them, faster or bigger uh, than most species that actually uh, could threaten us. Except, you know, we're smarter, right? We're smarter. Well, um, we'll find out. Our our next guest, Dr. Joe Henrik, is a uh, professor at uh, the Canada Research, he's the Canada Research Chair in Culture, Cognition, and Coevolution at the University of British Columbia. He also teaches economics and psychology there. He's a professor also of human evolutionary biology at Harvard and has written a book called The Secret of Our Success, How Culture is Driving Human Evolution, Domesticating Our Species, and Making Us Smarter. Dr. Heinrich's here to, to teach us everything we need to know about uh, what really is the secret of our success. Dr. Henrik, thank you so much for being with us. Nice to be with you, Matt. It's, uh, it's, uh, to me, I, I was fascinated by um, your, your thesis here. Talk about, okay, is it our brain that makes humans so successful that separates us from uh, the rest of the, the other animal kingdoms, or what is our key to success? Well, I think one way to kind of uh, throw the problem into stark relief is if you imagine a kind of game of survivor experiment in which we take, say, a bunch of Americans, you know, well-educated, um, uh, adults, experienced, and uh, parachute them into the Aturi forest in Africa. And we also <laughs> parachute in a group of capuchin monkeys. And we then see who we come back a year later or two years later and see which team survived, the, the big-brained humans or the relatively <laughs> small-brained capuchin monkeys. And if your intuitions are like mine, you're probably bet on the monkeys. Yeah, it'd be a bloodbath. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, why, why would that be? Well, the, the reason is there's, of course, lots of humans who have lived for millennia uh, in the Aturi forest, but that's because they depend on a large body of information that they acquire from previous generations, information about how to find food, make shelters, create medicines, detoxify plants, and, and hunt animals and do animal tracking. And the Americans we'd, we'd parachute in there wouldn't have had that knowledge bestowed on them by previous generations. 
So it really turns out our ability to survive in all the diverse uh, environments that humans have expanded on all over the planet comes from something about our ability to generate this cumulative know-how, which turns out to be rooted not in our individual intelligence or learning abilities, but in the fact that we attend to and learn from other people. And that creates this cultural evolutionary or cultural inheritance system that produces all this fancy stuff that we rely on. So the, the culture is the cumulative know-how. It's, it's the yeah. stored wisdom, knowledge, understanding of our environment, our culture. I mean our uh, – yeah, our environment. The natural world. Yeah, the natural world. And it's stored – where is culture stored? Just in – Yeah, so it's, it's – you should think of culture as information stored in our brains about how to make tools, about how to do rituals, about how to organize ourselves, stored in our brains – that we then pass down from one generation to another. Now, we typically call it culture only when a, a certain group of people comes to share similar ideas, beliefs, and values or ways of doing things and have similar customs. Hmm. Is, is our culture uh, – I guess our culture is adaptive, right? So if we, if we had enough people in that forest, over time, if they were surviving, they would start to pass down the, the skills, the tools, uh, and the information to, to create survival. It would, yeah. it would evolve, right? Exactly. So that's one of the uh, big insights of the last 10 or 20 years is that from very young age, people don't just learn from anybody. They don't just learn from their parents, but rather they zoom in on members of their social world who are particularly successful, skilled, or doing things that lead to success and prestige. Hmm. They'll even use cues about who other people are paying attention to and learning from to zero in and target their learning. Now, at the individual level, this only makes a small difference, but at the aggregate group level over generations, this unconsciously, without anybody knowing it, accumulates practices that allow people to survive better and better adapt to their environments. Hmm. It's, uh, um, is culture inherent? Is it just is it a, is it an intuitive, natural thing that we all just do naturally, or is it a, a taught thing? Well, culture so creation. The actual information that we're acquiring was being learned, but the the recent insights have suggested that we're evolved to be these kind of learners. That more than any other species, we look out into the world, into the other members of our social group, and preferentially learn from them. And one of the interesting things about that is we're so reliant on learning from other people that it'll even override our own intuitions, our own experiences, um, and even our own instincts. One of the examples I like about this is uh, people in hot climates eat a lot of chili peppers, and spices like chili peppers seem to be an adaptation for killing microbes that you find in meat. Hmm. Um, but other animals like chimpanzees and babies are very averse. They have innate aversions uh, to chili peppers. In fact, chili peppers probably evolved in order to create chemical toxins that keep uh, mammals away. But we're able to learn to like chili peppers by learning from other members of our social milieu in a way that allows us to solve a problem dealing with pathogens that, that accumulate in meat in hot climates. Wow. Isn't that interesting? Is it um, – as I, as I sit and think, uh, my kids today, uh, historically, the culture would be handed down almost tribally, right? And, right. And in, famili- in families, yeah, families and communities. Yeah. So we've been studying a lot of cultural learning in small-scale societies, so I do field work in Fiji. And people do learn from members of their household, but, you know, the kids are raised in, in mixed play groups. So the whole the village kids play together, and the old, younger ones learn from the older ones. So it's very much a community. It, t- it takes a village, as they say. Does, does this advancement of social media and technology, what, how, what does it do to our cultural 
milieu and change? Does it – I mean it seems like now my children can be influenced by someone culturally that isn't even of my culture. Right. So it, it massively expands the kind of pool of people we can learn from. Now, of course, we can learn things uh, through books and through through media, um, although there still seems to be a priority in our psychology for learning from people we can personally interact with and, and be in the same room with. So um, if you look at something like dialect, people still learn to speak the local uh, pronounce words in the local way the other members of their uh, their community do, and and not so much in the way that they might hear on TV. Um, but the, so it's kind of a mix uh, of how important these other other sources of input are. Hmm. And then we take um, we we I guess we take this collective culture, and is there an inherent nature or natural way that we try to just constantly improve upon the culture, or does a culture eventually just become kind of static and stays? neutral? Well, I mean, individuals themselves are, are making small modifications in lots of different ways. Um, the interesting thing is, is that a lot of these things, a lot of these complex sets of practices are sufficiently complicated that individuals themselves have, would have a hard time improving on it, but they're still making small modifications through their own experience, through errors they make, uh, but this just creates the variation to continue to improve things. Now, of course, certain things will get about as good as they can get for the environment. We see this sometimes with hunter-gatherer technology until something new comes in and spreads from, from some other group. Uh, and then one of the powerful drivers of all this is recombination. So the larger and more interconnected your groups are, the faster they're going to be able to uh, create adaptive cultural evolution, the faster this cumulative process is going to go. Hmm. What does the future of this look like? Well, um, I mean, because of this idea that the larger and more interconnected your populations are, the faster your adaptive evolution is, the faster technological evolution is, for example, it is good that the world's becoming more interconnected. So when we've seen in the past these various communication revolutions like reading and, and uh, the writing of letters and telephones and stuff, this all accelerates things. But now with the Internet, that it should uh, only exaggerate the, the speed of the evolution of all of um, this cultural body of know-how. Hmm. Wow. Fascinating stuff. Let's do this. Let's take a break. We're speaking again with uh, Dr. Joe Henrik, and he is walking us through his book, Secret of Our Success, um, How Culture is Driving Human Evolution, Domesticating Our Species, and Making Us Smarter. Interesting uh, research out of uh, the University of British Columbia and um, this great Dr. Joe Henrik. We'll take a break, folks. Come right back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. show. So what is the secret of our success as humans? Is it that brain that's just oh, that incredibly strong brain? Or is it our culture that drives us and uh, and continues our evolution and, and uh, domesticates us as a species, even makes us smarter? Well, our guest, Dr. Joe uh, Henrik, is uh, arguing that it is our culture that is the key. He is a the Canada Research Chair in Culture, Cognition, and Co-Evolution at the University of British Columbia. 
He um, also is a professor of human evolutionary biology at Harvard and has a new book, The Secret of Our Success, How Culture is Driving Human Evolution, Domesticating Our Species, and Making Us Smarter. Dr. Henrik, welcome back to the show. Good to be back. Is um, When you talk about this, the power of culture, it culture – I, I, is a uh, it's a cooperative effort, right? It's a cooperative. It's the interaction between humans um, that shares education, shares information, shares, I guess, the norms, the the mores of the culture. Um, what about if you if you're too individualistic? Does does this then start to break down if people aren't cooperating? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the uh, processes I describe as self-domestication. So uh, once once humans could learn from each other, they could acquire rules. And not only could they acquire rules about how to behave, how you're supposed to do certain rituals, what you're supposed to believe in, um, how you should build your house, uh, but you can also acquire the standards for judging others. And this gives rise to social norms. If a group uh, begins to share the standards for judging others, then it, it compels others to go along with whatever it is the group wants to do. And then you can have competition amongst groups so that rules and uh, standards for judging others that lead to that group to be more successful, to spread, to have more babies, um, to overtake other groups, those begin to spread. And you get this interaction of genetic and cultural evolution that will favor people who go along with the rules. Um, because if you don't go along with the rules, people judge you, they ostracize you, they punish you, um, and you know the, the group gets rid of you. So this led to us being a lot, becoming a lot more domesticated than other species, being able to uh, go along with the group, being kind of groupish and inclined to to whatever the group wants. Mm. Does is there is there a downside to this? It seems like um, if the group is going against. Uh, maybe somebody's values or beliefs, but the group is more powerful, then the group would just run over a, a, another person's values or beliefs. Well, yeah. I mean, so we're talking about a long-term yeah. uh Process. Uh, evolutionary process. And so, yeah, there were probably lots of individuals who had their own ideas and their own self-interest, but uh, they were compelled by the fact that the, they were being judged by others and they would get a bad reputation. They wouldn't be able to find mates, mm. uh, all those kinds of factors yeah. to, to, to go along with the group. So this, this led us, this gave us the ability to curb our self, self-interest in order to go along with widely shared norms in a social group. Hmm. So whatever it is the customs are in the group, and of course at the ultimate level, at the, at the evolutionary way, we're going along because our ancestors got punished for, for violating these rules. Now, of course, at the proximate level, a lot of times we're, we're going along for the same reason, or we may have actually internalized these social norms so that we want to do them. And it just gives us a way of better navigating a world by internalizing the social rules and, and, and making them our own in a hmm. sense. And um, how many years does it take to see an evolutionary change? Well, the um, we're talking about things here that have been happening for hundreds of thousands of years. But recent studies of the human genome have given us a real sense of how quickly genetic evolutionary change can occur. So um, there's a, uh, many humans, well, 32% of humans, have a gene that allows them to process milk, uh, break down lactase sugars, into adulthood. 
the standard mammalian is, uh, system is that after weaning, you lose the ability to break down lactose sugars. But in a couple different populations, one in Europe and, and some in Africa, certain populations um, had a genetic change. And we actually know, you know what chromosome the, the change uh-huh. occurred and, and what it did, which allowed them to process milk into adulthood. And so that then spread to 32% of the global population in about 7,000 years. 7,000 years. So th- that, that's the best estimation we have of a genetic evolutionary change. Right. So that's a pretty uh, – uh, that's a very strong selection pressure. So uh, in the sort of – in the studies that exist so far, that's one of the most powerful and quickest. Wow. Um, changes we've seen. So think of that as an as a upper upper limit on how fast evolution can go, genetic evolution. So really, um, like we now seem to have this, incre- this incredible flux of information systems and technology driving things, and we may not see evolutionarily what all this technology, how, how it will impact us evolutionarily for 7,000 more years. Right. So the, these things take a long time. Yeah. Um, now, one of the points I make in the book is that although, you know, the modern world is transforming in ways that will no doubt have big evolutionary consequences for where our genetic evolution goes, that's been the case in human evolutionary history for at least a million years. Hmm. So one of the interesting things about, about humans is that if you compare us to other primates and other mammals, our digestive tract uh, looks depauperate. So our stomachs are too small for a primate of our size, our colons are too short, we have these small teeth and, and small gapes. But all this makes sense when you realize that we've been processing food and particularly cooking food for probably over a million years, Hmm. which you can think of processing food and cooking it, chopping it up, marinating it, all of these ways in which societies have long processed food as a kind of external digestion. So we're breaking things down before we actually consume it, and that meant natural selection could stop investing so much in fancy digestive tissues like stomachs and colons and invest more in our brains. Um, so in this case, the uh, cultural technology, how to cook and process food, has shaped our, our physiology. That is fascinating. What else do we need? How else is this going to impact us? And, and from your learning and more and domestication of humans, and um, what do you see happening in the future? Or what else do we need to understand from your book? Well, I mean, if you're looking ahead, you know, many of these things depend on, you know, whether current trends continue and how fast um, existing technologies spread. But one thing that is interesting to think about is the rates of cesarean sections have been increasing uh, dramatically across the world. And this means that, that babies who otherwise had a head too large to make it out of the womb uh, can now be born. Hmm. And there's, it's widely thought that there's, um, that there's a constraint on the ability of infants' heads to grow prior to birth because of the size of, the, of a woman's birth canal. And this actually may have constrained a selection pressure for us to have bigger brains that were better able to acquire cultural information and store all the know-how we need. But if culture allows us to, to get around that problem, as cesarean sections do, that may release the selection pressure and lead to humans with larger brains wow. and, and bigger heads that otherwise, and then eventually cesarean sections will be requisite because uh, most babies, I mean, you know, obviously we're looking way into the future. Right. And, uh, it depends on current trends continuing, but that's one interesting thing to think about. Well, and that's also why you'd want to invest in, in larger hat companies that produce <laughs> larger hats. Yeah, although it might be a bit premature. To, to <laughs> that's true. Don't do it for about 6,000 years. 
then start investing. You know, that is fascinating. Um, what does what does this do? I, and I guess uh, so morality then would have also evolved, you're saying, through like domestication. Well, yeah. So um, so would, will, will we become a more moral people? Yeah. So one of the things, the arguments that I make in the book is the way to think about, I mean, moral is a kind of loaded term. Yeah, it so is. Let me, let me reframe things a little bit, is that um, different societies are going to have different social norms. And some of those social norms are going to be about, say, sharing food or group cooperation or working together in house building or, say, working together and raiding other groups and driving them out of territory. Competition amongst groups is going to favor those social norms which best allow groups to, to do that. Um, and so a lot of the evolution of how we treat others is going to be driven by this competition among groups, and those with the, the, the social norms that allow you to best compete with other groups are going to spread at the expense of those that don't. Mm. One of the fun um, sort of cultural technologies that I discuss in the book, and it's now been widely studied, are ritual practices. So when people in communities do rituals, so they move in sync and they sing in sync and they do all the things that we think of as the modern components of ritual, it actually gives them a sense of solidarity. It binds them together. Um, Sometimes it makes people think of themselves as a single group. And experiments done by psychologists show that this actually makes people more cooperative. And you can actually see in the spread of hunter-gatherer groups in Australia that the groups with more powerful rituals that better would bind the group together and build links between different groups were spreading at the expense of groups who didn't have those kinds of hmm. rituals. So rituals could uh, – they, they, uh, they strengthen solidarity. They strengthen uh, community. Right. And, and, then, and therefore are, are – promoted more and last right. more and enduring. So then they spread, and this is one of the reasons why you know, many, so many human societies have rituals of some type or another mm-hmm. that um, you know, have many of the same elements, yeah. because they're tapping aspects of our evolved psychology that help, help us kind of be more groupish. Yeah, that's powerful. And um, what would you, how does this change your life, uh, Joe, when you, as a, just as a person, a human, what, what, what do you think of? What excites you about what you're learning? Well, one of the uh, things, like, if you're interested in being creative and um, developing new ideas, one of the things the collective brain points you towards is the importance of uh, interacting with people with diverse expertise who know lots of stuff about that, that you don't know about. Because it's through the recombination of different ideas that we're able to, to come up with new ideas and develop new ways of thinking. So focusing on recombination through building diverse social networks um, is something that, 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 that I think about that comes out of this work that I try to use in my own life. Yeah, that's powerful because then ideas that probably have not spent much time together can start to, to coalesce and right. grow. Right, and create new things. That's powerful. Well, we appreciate it. Uh, Dr. Joe Henrik, thank you so much uh, for your insight. Um, And again, the book is The Secret of Our Success, How Culture is Driving Human Evolution, Domesticating Our Species, and Making Us Smarter by uh, Dr. Joseph Henrik. Thanks again, Joe. Okay, thanks, Matt. Great stuff. Uh, Wow. Our heads are going to get bigger. That is crazy. I mean, in 7,000 years. That is fascinating. Man, people are just smart. Cool. Welcome to Earth, folks. Welcome to Earth. 7,000 years to see a genetic change, an evolutionary genetic change. 
minimum. Fast. Crazy. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. to the Matt Townsend Show. Is your spouse, uh, you know, really active in some sport, some hobby, whatever it is, and you feel like it's taking them away from you and your marriage? Hobbies, they really can, uh, you know, be beneficial and help us to feel young and vibrant, to connect to our passions. It might even keep us thinking uh, in a healthier way. But sometimes they also can end up stealing your time, your attention, your focus. Many times I'll see couples that will come in and see me, and they'll, they'll talk about how they have fallen out of love. And every time I hear a couple arguing that they have fallen out of love, I, I usually think, well, okay, they probably have actually fallen into something else. I'm not sure I believe that people fall out of love. I think they just fall into a passion somewhere else, doing something else, and it's really simple to do. I mean, imagine when you're first married, you're first in love, life is life is great, tons of chemistry, everything about your spouse you think is cute, it's fantastic, it's wonderful. And meanwhile, um, it, it was easy too, right? Love was easy when you're first in love. It gets harder as time goes on. You, uh, you know, life gets more stressful, expenses go up more children maybe, but these problems end up having to be dealt with. We have to learn to communicate. So as the relationship gets more complicated, many of us might actually turn away from the relationship to a hobby, to something else where we can escape, where we can get away from the the the, the difficulty. And I see it all the time. I had a client that just started riding um, bicycles and became a really good cyclist, started joining teams, started traveling with his team every Saturday, and then he'd have to train for hours, and it became an obsession. Now, you would think it would be wonderful because he's he's losing weight, he's staying in shape, he has tons of passion, he's excited about something, except for the fact that he was no longer as active in parenting, he was no longer there for dates, and he could only talk about his hobby. He couldn't relate to his family. He couldn't relate to other things. So hobbies, do they get in the way of you and your marriage? And if so, is it starting to to really frustrate you? One of the reasons why I've, um, I wanted to talk about this today is because I have seen marriages die be- simply because of one partner's hobby. And, um, I want to give you some tools, some ideas today on how to go about combating your partner's hobby. I mean, you can hate it all you want, but for some reason, they're doing it. They're choosing it, and there there's obviously power if we could actually connect on the hobby. So I would suggest one of the greatest goals you could have in a marriage is some shared hobbies. Some things that you love to do together. When my wife and I were first married, we played tennis a lot all through high school. We played tennis. We don't ever make time for tennis anymore. 
And yet it was something that we used to connect on. It was something that used to keep us uh, motivated. It was something that used to keep us active and together. And yet we don't even do it. So instead of letting these hobbies divide us, and instead of my wife being frustrated by me liking, you know, whatever Netflix or me frustrated by her because she always wants to go on walks, how can we go find kind of the the common ground, the shared ground when it comes to our hobbies? One of the first rules I'm going to give you is we need to look at the distraction um, and find out what is so attractive about it. Find the attraction in your partner's distraction. One of the number one ways I've ever found to um, to probably value something you don't necessarily like just inherently is to understand it better. Why would your husband love fishing five hours a night until midnight or one or two in the morning? Why would they like that? That's crazy. You can hate it all you want. Or you can go try to just have a conversation and understand, what is it about fishing that is so valuable for you? Why are you so excited? You might even want to go with them and figure out what is it about this. And I bet you the more information you gather, don't just make it about fishing. What is it about standing in a river? And you might be able to see maybe the beauty of the river. You might be able to see that your, your husband is motivated by the challenge of trying to find the fish, of trying to choose the right bait or lure, or trying to do the right technique with a fly rod, or trying to um, just just that moment of when the the fish is uh, the fish hits and they get to reel it in. What is it that motivates your spouse to be so into doing family history or genealogy, or writing a, uh, you know writing a book? What is it about what they're doing, because you don't have to love what they're doing, but if they're going to be spending a lot of time and energy doing it, you really might want to understand it. And I found the more I understand what my wife is doing, the more I uh, I appreciate it. My wife has started a blog that um, it's a really uh, it's an interesting thing because it takes time. And I personally would love her writing other things for me and with me. And yet the blog um, I'm noticing is being used by my wife to create a catharsis where she can deal with some of her other stresses of life. Now, when I don't read the blog, when I'm not up to date on the blog and I and I haven't cared about the blog, then to me it's just an annoyance. But when I understand the catharsis and I can see how much – my wife is being able to be healed by writing her blog, then it makes me feel like, okay, I can tolerate this. This is good. So one of the first things I would say about your spouse's hobby, even if it irritates you to no end, try to understand where it's coming from. They're not doing it to just hate you. They have a passion. They're going through something maybe in their life where they're trying to find a healthy way to handle it. So help them handle it. Now, if you are the one with a hobby that's taking a lot of time and energy, you got to be real. Is it is it a hobby that's impacting? Is it impeding a healthy relationship? Are you doing it too much? 70% of divorces are filed by women. And so when they come into my office, 
invariably, they're kind of like done. They've been trying to work on this marriage for years. And a lot of times the guys are like, what? It's not a big deal. Well, it is a big deal because you golf three times a week. And then you tell us we don't have money to go on a vacation. But you're paying $800 a month golfing. It's impacting us. And your friends are driving me crazy when it comes to this. So also you need to ask yourself, is your hobby impeding? Is it impacting? What would, if I took your hobby and presented the data about how much time you spend coaching your kids' sports, is it impeding on a healthy marriage? Would 9 out of 10 dentists agree that it is impacting a healthy marriage? I want you to think about that because to just go be actively involved in your passion, it does not equate to a happy marriage. So don't assume just because you are passionate and loving your passion, don't assume your marriage is going to work or it's even going to be tolerated. If you want your marriage to work, you're going to need to make your marriage your passion. You're going to need to make your marriage your hobby. Well, marriages shouldn't be that difficult. Marriage should be more natural. I hear people tell me that all the time. And every time they tell me that, I think, well, okay, more natural like childbirth? Yeah, okay. Yeah, nothing more natural than childbirth. But not easy. And not always so natural. Really painful. If you want your marriage to work, then we want to make the marriage part of the hobby. We might also want to understand why our partner does what they do and don't just take offense and be offended by it. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Stick with us. 